In the beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was made nothing that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God, to make that believe, to make them believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as it were of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, I welcome today uh, the great EMJ, um, whose reputation precedes him um, as a new Catholic without any uh, religious upbringing, uh, a father who was a, a, a Pentecostal who became an atheist and a mother who was a recovered Catholic. I didn't have any metaphysical uh, framework growing up and um, getting into EMJ's um, literature, especially Logos Rising, which will be kind of the main topic here, but we're going to go into different uh, subjects that has opened my mind up to the point that, uh, you know, now, now I'm starting out with old Ed Fazer so I can uh, get more into it. But uh, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Isaac. Good to be here. Yes, sir. So um, to start out, to keep things simple, um, how would you define logos? Um, and where in history, in history have we come close to this fullness of truth? Um, I know in your book you reference Egypt. Uh, with Atum, I think it was, and then uh, with the Greeks, but um, uh, please. Um. Yeah, lo uh, logos is the Greek word for rationality, uh, for word, for speech, for the order of the universe, all, all of this type of stuff. Uh, it's uh, As I studied Greek, I, I was shocked to know that there were like five pages of words that you can use in English that are all encapsulated in this one word. And that's pretty much why I decided to use this word rather than the English translation. You read the English translation there, uh, and it begins with a sentence that I just found mystifying. It said, in the beginning was the word. I don't know what that means. And the, and the word was with God, and the word is God. I have no idea what that means. And then it goes on. So you try and, well, what about Latin? In principio erat verbum. Well, verbum is the same thing. It's the word. In Greek, uh, in German, it's um, anfang vadas wort. It's the same thing. None of these words have the power of the original Greek. And that's why it's so important. To, uh, uh, that's why it was important. What happened here is really significant. It's the turning point of human history. In, uh, and I don't think that, you know, you can talk about lots of things uh, in that regard, but I think in this place, in this instance, you're not exaggerating at all. Because what you, what you have here, as I pointed out in Logos Rising, is a, a new idea. Jesus Christ has arrived on the earth. Uh, the Jewish Messiah who was rejected by the Jewish people and crucified by them. Uh, uh, and uh, 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 leaving his followers in a kind of stunned silence, full of fear, hiding out. And then they, the Holy Spirit comes in the Pentecost, and they're filled with zeal, and they start talking to the, to the, uh, to the Hebrews, to the Jews at this point. Uh, and St. Peter, it's the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. He goes out to Jerusalem, and he says, you killed Christ. 
well, that's a good opening line, isn't it? That'll that'll really endear you to the audience. Uh, but it's exactly the right opening. And he said, uh, so what must we do to be saved? The, G- the Jews were cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? You have to be baptized. Well, that's this is an action-oriented operation. This is not philosophical. This is this is history. This is these guys full of zeal. And we don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to get right to the heart of the matter. We're going to cut to the chase. That's it. And it worked here. Uh, but then uh, it started to spread among the Jews, and the Jews who killed Jesus Christ are not happy. The, the, the word is spreading. And so they start to persecute the Jews. And pretty, much, pretty soon it becomes clear that the Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah are not welcome in the synagogue anymore. And one of those Jews was the one who persecuted the uh, Christians was uh, St. Paul. Uh, and he's expelled from the synagogue and he doesn't know exactly what to do and he has a dream. And it's basically some guy going on the other side of the ocean. He's on the other side of the Aegean going like this. And St. Paul decides, well, it's, I, I, I guess I'm supposed to go to Greece. I guess that's what that means. Uh, he was a uh, spoke Greek. He was fluent in Greek. And un- this is in that sense, he was unlike St. Peter who could not speak Greek and just could speak to his fellow Hebrews. And it eventually led to a conflict here between St. Paul and St. Peter over what it meant, what you had to do to be a Christian. Did you have to follow the Mosaic law? Did you have to be circumcised? Could you eat pork? And they had a, went toe to toe. And basically St. Paul was right and St. Peter was wrong because he saw that vision of something comes down. All these things that were unclean for the Jews are now uh, clean uh, and there's no taboo associated with them for the Christians. So Paul goes off to Areopagus, uh, to Greece, to, and then to uh, finally goes down to Athens, the heart of Greek culture, uh, the, to the Areopagus, which is a club. It's not, it's not your average Greek. These are the Greeks who study philosophy, and they know who Plato and Aristotle are. And St. Paul just came from Ephesus, and Ephesus is different. Ephesus is across the other side of the ocean. And the whole economy of Ephesus revolves around making little statues of this ugly goddess with about 12 breasts uh, called Diana, uh, kind of fertility goddess, as the breasts indicate. And the silversmiths do not like anyone to jump in on their game, and so they expel Paul, and he goes to Athens, and he gives this, the Ephesus speech in Athens, and it doesn't work. It's a failure. He's in, he's in a hurry, too. All these guys are in a hurry. Like, this is so important. Listen, I have to talk to you about this, and I'm going to buttonhole you, and you're not getting out of here until you get baptized, something like that. And he tries to give this speech, and he says, you know, uh, I've walked through your city and seen the idols, and I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute, who's he? We never heard of this guy. Well, he, he, he came and he, he died for your sins, and then he rose from the dead. And at that point, oh, he rose from the dead. Oh, well, we'll talk to you some other time. And they all walked out, except for two people. So it's the wrong speech. And I'm, and I'm saying the man who knew it was the wrong speech was St. John. Because he knew this is a new world. Now, we're not just talking to Jews now. We're talking to the entire world, which is speak Greek at this point. And we have to speak their language. 
And so the Gospel of St. John was written in Greek, and when you write in Greek, you import Greek concepts into your thought, and the Greek concept is basically philosophy, which the Hebrews did not have. The Hebrews had a history without philosophy, and the Greeks had a philosophy without history. And so John, at this point, gets the idea, well, what if we bring these two things together? And that's exactly what he did in those first three sentences. So the other Gospels begin with a a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So he begat this and begat that, and David begat, and so on and so forth. And the Greeks, they never heard of these guys. It's not going to work here. So instead of going through that, which is pretty much, Paul didn't do it, but he pretty much presumed something like that, that you would, if you knew the genealogy, you know, you would know this is from the house of David. This is a long-awaited Hebrew Messiah, but they didn't know that. That's another, that's another group of people. And so St. John got to the, began with metaphysics. And metaphysics is basically talking about the beginning. That's part of mm-hmm. metaphysics. And he said, in the beginning, there was Logos. In other words, there was order. A, a guy who didn't get the memo is Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, I don't know whether you saw this video. I just went, I went after Jordan Peterson. I'm, I'm, I feel so bad for this guy. It's rough. But He's come uh, so close uh, so many times. But he, for, and I understand, you know, a guy who stands up there and tells you to clean up your room. I mean, who, who can argue with that? Clean up your room. Great right. idea. But... <laughs> They fly him, I think it's Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire crowd, fly him to Ephesus. Oh, Ephesus, whoa. It's like, whoa. I'm like, whoa, Ephesus, the library of Celsus in Ephesus. He got the spotlights on him, and he walks out there with his cell phone, and he makes an ass out of himself because he doesn't understand what metaphysics is. And beyond that, he doesn't understand the significance of the Gospel of St. John. Because God said, so what did St. John do? He took the Hebrew scripture, Genesis. The first sentence of Genesis is, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, which is one of the most powerful statements in the world because neither Aristotle nor Plato knew that there was a beginning. They thought the world was eternal. And then they made a, a, a mistake. Two of the subtlest minds, most powerful minds in human history, made a mistake because they could not distinguish between causality and time. And we make this mistake all the time. It's called the post hoc ergo propter hoc. And the man who did understand it was Aquinas who said, even if the world were eternal, it had to come into being. Well, that's powerful. That's subtle. And that's the type of mind uh, that Aquinas had. And so basically what he did took Genesis in the beginning God created heaven and earth, which overturned all of, solved all of Aristotle and Plato's problems or began to solve them. And then reintroduces it as the New Testament and says in the beginning there was Logos. Well, this is a great compliment to the Greeks because what God is saying, now God is the author of the Gospel of St. John. You know, St. John used his mind to to talk about it, but God is the author of Scripture, and what God is saying here is these Greeks were onto something. We, we can't just ignore this, and this is a lesson for us <laughs> that Logos is important, and don't ignore Logos. And this has ramifications uh, throughout history, especially when the great explorations begin. And I'm talking about the 15th century, 1492, 
when America is discovered, and then the 16th century, the age of great exploration, where the Europeans start sailing all over the world. And they come to people who have never heard of, I've never heard of these people. Sometimes it's a, a, a high civilization, like when St. Francis uh, Xavier went to India, ancient civilization, kind of decadent. They have 90, 33 million gods there, so it's kind of confusing. Uh, he hangs out there in Goa for about six months and says, this is out of, sorry, I can't do anything with these people, and goes to Japan. Well, what are you going to talk about to the Japanese? What are you going to talk about? Are you going to do the St. Paul thing all over again? Or are you going to walk in and, and, and walk into a room full of Japanese guys and say, I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is exactly what Paul did after he got rebuffed at the Areopagus. He went to Corinth and found a better reception among sailors and whores than he did among the philosophers because he said, I am going to preach Christ and him crucified. That's it. Well, I thought it succeeded in Corinth. Okay, so how, who am I to argue with St. Paul? But it's not going to work in Japan. So what's he talking about? It brings a telescope and an astrolab and basically comes up and says to them, I have a better understanding of the universe than you do. Well, that's a good opening line because they know what the universe is. I mean, we live in the universe. So what do you mean by that? And they say, well, you know, how many days do you have in your, how many days are there in a year? 365. Yeah, that's right. And then you end up with snow in July when you believe that, don't you? Well, yeah, I, there is something. Well, I got the answer to that. Well, now you've got their attention. And if you can say, okay, there's a logos to uh, the universe. In the beginning, there was logos. Jordan Peterson said in the beginning, there was chaos. This is a, what an idiot. He, could, he didn't understand the difference between Hesiod, who was a contemporary of Homer, and St. John. He didn't even know that. Why would you stand up there and make an ass out of yourself? Anyway, I don't, get, I don't want to jump on Jordan Peterson anymore. Back to Japan. Okay, so now we've got a dialogue going. And I think this, is, this was the message that the Jesuits embodied one of the most heroic group of men in human history because they would set out and they'd end up in Paraguay. If you saw the movie The Mission, you show up in the jungles of Paraguay these people have never seen anybody like you. You've never seen. What are you going to do? You're going to talk to them? No, you can't do that. So he takes out a flute and plays the flute. And suddenly they understand there's an order here. This is fascinating. I've never, I, there's something going on here that I can almost understand. And then he begins, and what the Jesuits did was they learned Guarani. Yes. And the only reason the Guarani, uh, uh, are in, uh, that language is in existence because the Jesuits wrote the dictionary and the grammar, and it is one of the official languages wow. of Paraguay. Mm -hmm. So this is so. What you're saying here is we can't. This is the way we have to deal with the world. You can't have a uh, faith without reason. It's not going to work. It's not going to work, and that's like that's not the Catholic way because God redeemed the world, and there's a logos to that existence that is accessible to the human mind. All of this was destroyed by Protestantism. I guess, exactly. Well, I did, that's the, so I, I loved, the, I think you had a comparison between 
um, as the Sunni Muslims, uh, all the, the the Neoplatonists were killed off, suppressed, and replaced with uh, anti-rationalism. That I there's a there's a similar um, heresy being committed by a specific, you know, especially a, a modern lower church split away uh, uh, Protestantism um, that is explicitly anti-rationalist. It it it. It it believes every just explain everything away with God's will and those who don't who 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 attempt to reason are uh they're 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 not understanding the 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 they don't have the spirit with them. You need to have the spirit. You need to right. And that's where like kind of a lot of these sort of Pentecostal kind of uh uh church church services are are, are sort of um they lack any interest in that. Uh, that reason um right could i high so this, high powered this, emotion yeah go ahead go ahead oh okay um so this actually relates to the the next question i want to ask which is in the book and i want it'd be it'd be lovely if you could um i haven't been able to make a succinct uh you know uh easy uh uh, uh sort of just quick thing to say about comparing the the paganisms that could not when they when the um they could not understand the connection between god and then the creation happening and so they filled it with pagan gods um with uh with a demiurge and um i uh i'm curious how do you contrast how does how does christ fulfill that um the word fulfill that the word in the flesh um and perhaps um we can get on to the the uh well i'll leave with i'll leave with that with that if you okay if, if you can run with that. so uh, so philosophy bloomed uh in greece okay and it reached uh it began with thales and the under the idea that there's got to be some type of underlying unity to the universe and thales said it was water and anaxagoras said it was air and then uh, uh heraclitus who was from ephesus and was probably influenced by Persian uh, thought and Zoroastrianism, which worships fire, said that it was fire. And fire is energy, and fire is uh, a candle flame is always changing and always the same. So, okay, that's, that's, that's significant, but Heraclitus was also the first man to use the word logos in this term. And so now, this is a great leap forward because you're breaking away from picture thinking which is what the, the physiologoi, like Thales, were uh, physicists, and they always reduced it to something material. Well, no, the universe is not reducible to something material. There's a spirit to it that is captured by the word logos. And so he was the first one to use logos at that point. And that was the turning point, because at this point, basically, the physiologoi couldn't go any farther because they didn't have uh, either the microscope or the telescope. So they really couldn't examine nature any, any, in any depth or, or detail. And so at that point, philosophy got uh, taken over by the sophists, who were lawyers, who could give you something practical. Basically, you know, you hire me, and I'll win you a, a legal case, and you'll get damages, and you'll have a lot of money, and I'll have a lot of money. And what else is there other than money? Right, and that was the problem with the sophist, which Socrates uh, uh, exposed. Because, well, is it just winning the arguments, or is there something deeper to it, like the truth, like the transcendental known as the truth? And Socrates pursued this, and the uh, they didn't like him, 
Uh, and so he ended up being killed for, be, as a, for his principles. He refused to run away. They wanted him to escape so that they would get off the hook, but he stayed, and they, so they made him drink hemlock, and he died. At that point, you reach the culmination of uh, the f- philosophical tradition with Plato and then his student Aristotle. Plato was a student of Socrates. He wrote about the death of Socrates, and then Aristotle comes along, and you have two basically different views of the world. Plato felt that the world was divided into two parts. Uh, The world we live in, which is in constant motion, which means you can't understand it. And the world of forms, which is understandable, but not accessible. And so where does God fit in? Well, that's a good question. Where does God fit in? Uh, So Plato tried to bridge this gap by saying there was a, a demiurgos or worker of the people. Uh, and so, but as soon as you're working for the people, you're concerned. That's consoling. That's nice to know. But basically, you're just one of us because you're not eternal. If you're not eternal, you're not God. And that's the bind. So Aristotle, who was more uh, inclined to examine the world as it exists with all of its complexity and contradictions, said that uh, it was an uncaused cause and an unmoved mover. That's the judgment that he came to in his book, Metaphysics, which was the beginning of that metaphysical tradition. Uh, It came after physics. This is the basis for physics. It's like the hidden grammar of physics. And that's what he said. And so that's true. That is divine uh, because it's immutable, because it's the cause of everything else. And now we can understand that you just can't go in that infinite regression that the Indians got stuck in when they... You know, they had the the world on top of the yes, exactly the yeah. four elephants, and the four elephants are standing on the four tur- uh, the turtles. Well, what's the turtle standing on? I asked an Indian that question, and he converted to Catholicism because he couldn't answer yeah. that question. So uh, that's out, you know. Uh, but the ignoramuses uh, still say this. So people like Dennett, the four atheists, are ignoramuses when it comes to philosophy. Uh, and there's a whole chapter on them in, in Logos Rising. So it basically, so you've got the unmoved mover, which is certainly eternal and it's divine, but th- is it a thing or is it a person? We don't know. Does it care for us? Well, you can be pretty sure that it really doesn't care one way or the other. We don't know if it's a person. On the other hand, the demiurgos cares for us, but he's obviously not divine because he's not in the world of the realm of the or eternal. That's the bind. And at that point, philosophy ends. It doesn't end immediately, but they couldn't resolve that bind. It goes on for another 500, you know, another 800 years in Athens. Then the uh, Platonic Academy moves to Ctesiphon and becomes a Persian operation. Uh, but the whole project got interrupted by this event called uh, the uh, Incarnation, when God became man. And suddenly, what we realize, what everyone realized, well, that just solved the problem. Now, it wasn't clear immediately because they had to work out something called the Trinity. And that was a basic a debate in Greek that took about 300 years. But it began with uh, when St. John said, and Logos is with God. Logos is God. Logos is with God. What do you mean by that? And what do you mean by son? When Jesus Christ calls himself the son of God and he refers to his father, what do you mean by that? 
And it took a long time to think that thing through. And that was the great benefit of Christianity because it, they were nobodies. And it, they had 300 years. They didn't have to exercise political power. They were a persecuted minority. Unlike the Muslims who immediately came to power and then conquered everybody without taking a breath to think about what they were doing. So the, they start thinking, and, and this is the time of the heresies, the great heresies. The Arianism was one of the great heresies, and they were known as ukontes, which in Greek means uh, not existing, don't exist, didn't exist. Well, this is an understanding of the... Um, relationship between the son and the father. Arius said basically, well, look, the father precedes the son, yeah. right? So if the father, obviously, you can't, have a fa you can't have a son without a father. The father comes before the son. This is obvious. We can't argue with that. Well, if the father precedes the son, there was a time when the son did not exist. If the son did not exist, then he's not eternal. And if he's not eternal, he's not God. So therefore, Jesus Christ was not divine. Well, I, be honest with you, I think that's a powerful argument. I mean, if I were there at the time, I don't know, I, I, where would you stand? I mean, all of the bishops, pretty, pretty much all of the bishops went with Arius. There was one uh, Athanasius who didn't, who stood up against him. But I'm thinking, that's a pretty persuasive argument. But it, it overlooks the fact that, uh, as I said, you... We have to be subtle. And you have to understand that there's a difference between causality and time. And so you can be caught, I think you can be caused in a sense and still be co-eternal. Well, that's too sophisticated for a Muslim. And I'm having, as, as even as we're going on, I'm having this discussion with Muslims. You know, uh, one just wrote to me, he says, you know, I, you know, he read The Dangers of Booty twice. I mean, that's extraordinary. A Muslim reading The Dangers of Beauty twice. That's great. I'm, I'm flattered to hear him say that. He says, but uh, so I think I accept what you say about beauty, but I don't accept the Trinity. Well, this is the type of discussion that we, you know, we should have. Uh, uh, the one we're having right now is one I think we're going to have to have in the Islamic world. And I think that's ready. I think it's going to happen. And I think, I, to be honest with you, I think I'm going to be leading the discussion. If I don't want to brag here, but I just got another. Uh, all right, I will brag. Okay, all right. Uh, got another. I got another uh, email today from Mashad. There is a group of uh, Muslim scholars there who have formed an institute based on the writings of E. Michael Jones, and they want me to come there and they want me to discuss this thing. Well, I'm I'm ready to do that. I think we should do that. We're going to have an, on, an online discussion because they're in a bind. They've been, uh, the Iranians, I've been dealing with Iranians for for 10 years now. And I've thought a lot, these are the, the intelligent people. They're the politest people on the face of the earth. They had a high culture at a time when my German ancestors were chasing pigs through the forest of Germany. Okay. And they're, uh, but they don't, something happened there. And what happens is the Islamic conquest. And they still haven't gotten over it. They have not gotten over it. And so what you have is a kind of duality in Iran of, on the one hand, westernizers, go back all the way to the beginning in Islamic philosophy. There's the Mutazilites 
who read Aristotle and are thinking, this is important. Let's try and figure out, well, doing Aristotle all by yourself, uh, that's a tall, tall task. Jeffrey Sachs, to give one example, said, everything I learned in graduate school about economics is wrong. I'm going to do it myself, and I'm going to go back to Aristotle, and I'm going to figure it out. Jeff, you're not going to figure it out. I guarantee you, you're not going to figure it out because you don't have the capability of doing, uh, going Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle didn't write on economics. There's a, a apocryphal book, but he didn't write it. So anyway, this is the type of discussion that uh, basically has been postponed in the Islamic world for 1,500 years now. And I'm saying now it's the time it's going to happen. It's going to happen because they have to resolve this issue. Yes. It's, be, it's become an absolutely cr critical issue in Iran right now. This is we're now uh, nearing the first anniversary of the hijab uprising. And the hijab uprising is a, it's an incarnational crisis. It's a crisis that, what, what is, because it's about sex. And sex is both spiritual and it's physical. And that's the great mystery about sex. Yes. And so who, who's going to be in charge of the sex department here? Uh, they have two options in Iran. They have nuclear physics or physics or science or whatever you want to call that. And you have uh, the clergy who are, uh, believe that they can give you a one-day marriage the clergy have approved a one-day marriage. So the clergy don't understand sex and the nuclear physicists don't understand sex. Well, that's a big part of your life, isn't it? Especially if you're a woman. And then you add to that the fact that the, the supreme leader of uh, the turning point came in 1989, the Ayatollah Khomeini died. The new supreme leader comes in and one of the first thing he does is approve birth control. What a mistake that was. And he has gone, he's, to his credit, now this is a man who, of integrity, I think, because he said it was the biggest mistake he had ever made in his life, and he begged Allah for forgiveness. Uh, well, that's good, but the question is, can you put the toothpaste back in the tube now? After 1989, uh, that's, uh, we're going on 30, 40 years now with that. And you've got generations of women who have become accustomed to wearing the hijab and taking birth control pills. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. And I think that this, the, the CIA just had a field day over there because they know how easily they can exploit this contradiction. That's what they're paid to do. They're smart guys. Uh, and they know how to exploit this weakness. And the women just exploded last year and took off their hijabs and their, it was a huge crisis. And so that's, I think the entry where I'm going to have, we're going to have to talk about big issues, but I think we have to enter it with dealing, dealing with this crisis. That's amazing. Um, what would, what do you make of, so we have, uh, 14, 1500 going into uh, 1400 years, with you know a great schism in the middle of it but um of uh sort of a, a, a unified catholic church um and we go into the the italian renaissance um and we go into an era of the rise of the middle class um uh early forms of 
what would become our modern ideas on private property. Um, and uh, I, I'm curious, where did the spark happen that led to um, Protestantism? Was it was it Descartes? Was Descartes, unfortunately, the spark that led to this? Or no, no. is there something uh, deeper? Um, no, it, Descartes is is a, a hundred over a hundred years after the Reformation. Okay. So they they first of all, when you're dealing with uh, when you're dealing with the Reformation, it's simple because it's not theological; it's a looting operation. It's that simple. And the English yeah. Reformation was nothing more than uh, uh, the the aristocracy reacting to the the fact that the clergy owned enormous amounts of land and land uh, is an important thing to own especially when you live on an island because it's very it's it's very limited and so therefore very valuable and if you apply labor is the source of all value but you have to apply it to something but so when you apply labor to land uh, you get wealth it's not immediate, it's not like get rich quick, but it's a slow and steady operation and it can build uh, gradually. And that's precisely what happened to the monasteries as the epitome of church property. They owned the land, the monks would show up there, they took vows of uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience, which meant they didn't own anything. It's like Klaus Schwab. They didn't own anything and they were happy for the most part. Uh, And all of that wealth got plowed back into the monastery. And so all that labor and all that land created a lot of wealth. And at a certain point, they couldn't restrain themselves. And so they broke. Uh, Henry VIII broke uh, broke with uh, Rome. And once you break with Rome, uh, what are you going to do? Who's going to be the principle of order? You know, oh, we don't need them. We have our own principle of order. The king, I know, we'll make the king the head of the church. Well, how's that worked out in England? Uh, Remember Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen Elizabeth? Uh, She was the head of the Church of England during one of the most catastrophic collapses of of the moral law in the 20th century. What happened in England over the course of the 20th century was catastrophic, and she did nothing to prevent it, nothing. Even as head of the church, she did nothing to prevent it. And I'm talking specifically about the legitimization of sodomy, mm-hmm. uh, abortion, contraception, and leading to the c- catastrophe that is England right now. So well, that uh, didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, interestingly enough, ne- the Netherlands and Germany, which are the forefront of the, the Reformation, have both been... Um, the Catholic Church is, uh, especially recently in Germany, has recently become the largest church in those respective nations. The Catholics just by a little bit in Germany, but for the Netherlands, I mean, all of these former Protestants have become non-religious. It's it's all but died. Just That's what happened. Yeah, I think that 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 was uh, you're you're too young to to know to have noticed this, but uh, during the 1980s, there were significant Protestant leaders in America. Uh, I'm talking about uh, evangelicals like Jerry Falwell, yeah. yep. uh, Pat Pat Robertson, uh, the guy from Louisiana. I forget his name now. Got in uh, Jerry uh, Jimmy Swaggart. Yeah. Uh, the Jimmy the, Baker. The, the Jimmy Baker. Oh, they were called televangelists, and they so uh, they were mobilized. So Jerry Falwell created this thing called the Moral Majority. 
uh, Pat Robertson had uh, had a protege, this guy uh, Ralph Reed, who called. Uh, what was his thing called? I was part of it. I was I was on their circuit. I was giving lectures there, and we're trying to bring the Protestants and Catholics together so that we can fight. Well, what were we fighting? Secularization. It was vague because we couldn't name the source of the problem because Ralph Reed was part of the problem because he was working for the Jews. And he was working for Jack Abramoff, and Jack Abramoff was uh, trying to, uh, uh, he was working for cas Indi Indian casinos in Mississippi. And all those Indians had names like Cohen and Goldberg. Uh, and this it was a scandal, and it was basically because we couldn't identify the enemy, and so we're all sad because that went bust. And now there's nobody to replace him. I mean, Jerry, I think it's Jerry Fowell's son is now involved in some big sex scandal. That generation has passed away. And what happened, I think, is it a Protestantism evaporated over this period of time. They, they stole the patrimony from the Catholic Church, uh, just as the arist aristocrats had stolen the property. They brought this patrimony in, and it was like you had a bottle of liquor without a stopper on it, and it evaporated. It wasn't a cataclysm. It just evaporated. And so people have, like uh, Frody, Frody Mityord, who uh, is invited me to speak uh, to debate uh, uh, Jared Taylor, was a Nor Norwegian, and he was born and baptized into the Lutheran Church in Norway. And then suddenly he woke up one day, and they, would, they didn't have a, a, an established church anymore. The Lutheran Church had been disestablished, and he had an identity crisis. Well, who am I then? And he became a white boy because he didn't know what else to become. And that happened across, you could see it happening in, in England, all of these former Protestant places. And now uh, the English still has technically an established church, but it, it's meaningless. Uh, those churches in Scandinavia have disappeared and they were replaced by uh, basically socialism. That's what, that's what it was in the 1950s. Socialism was uh, Christianity without the cross, and that's what happened in Sweden. And I, I tell that story in, in other other places. Mm -hmm. But uh, that that's what happened. And so now you're in places like uh, like Oklahoma, where I have a son living in Oklahoma. What is the identity if you're living in Oklahoma? I mean, it's just this godforsaken place. Even the, even the Indians didn't want to live there. They had to force the Indians to live in Oakland. Then they had to give it away to the white boys because nobody, and I can understand why nobody wants to live in Oklahoma. But uh, the, the people there, they have this, they're, they're like incredibly pro-life and incredibly pro-Israel. Now, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute. D do you know, didn't you get the memo? After they overturned Roe versus Wade, 400 Jewish organizations said that abortion was a fundamental Jewish value. Well, how do you reconcile that? All you Sooners out there, how do you reconcile that? Well, they don't. <laughs> so, so one guy, so I'm, I'm there in uh, Tulsa having dinner, and this guy shows up and he says to me, um, you know, I listened to what you said. My whole world fell apart after I finally understood what, what you were saying. And I said, well, then what happened? He said, well, I became a Catholic. So that, that was, it was, uh, allowed him to integrate things that were contradictory. But as of now, what you have is pro-life, 
pro-Zionist, and the thing that brings them together right now is dope, I think. Huh. You smoke you smoke marijuana uh, to make that contradiction go away. Every place, I, I when I went to Oklahoma City, every corner has a dope shop now. I think that's how they resolve that contradiction. Uh, smoke dope, and then the whole problem will go away. No, it's not going to. As Karl Marx once said, religion is the opiate of the masses. But now in Oklahoma and Michigan, opium is the religion of the masses. Yes. And I think that there's uh, a, a, me a message there, which is basically uh, the world has become so complex, so contradictory, and so out of control that you just better smoke dope. Otherwise, we're going to have an uprising on our hands. Mm -hmm. I, so, so many things there. What, something interesting that I don't, <clears throat> I don't know if you've spoken about it, but something I really that just grinds my gears and has stunned me uh, about not just the old school conservatives, the neocons, but even these new right wingers, even the, the white boys who are so prevalent these days, um, which I really like that um, that uh, uh, designation or designator for these people um, who've abandoned their ethnicity and and, and abandoned the church so they can become um, something called a wignat, which has you know, no constructive future, no positive vision other than you want to have a white nation, which you can't even define. But um, I, uh, what I'm curious about, man, is you, uh, is everyone on the right wing is just completely hypnotized by Jewish economics, by this, not only the, the, the subjective theory of value, but, um, they read people like Rothbard, they Friedman. Right. I mean, all of these people who are totally wrong, who are who are basically successors of the same uh, Cartesian cogito of you decide whatever your reality is. And it's shown uh, in Americans, especially Protestants and even especially people who have fallen away from their own Protestant churches. They can't even define their own beliefs in Christ. They can't even define what what they what the Bible is itself. They might even know what the Trinity is, but a lot of them. They definitely love capitalism. They love private property. They love their guns. And there's a there's like a deification of individualism. And it's almost synonymous with the right wing, with Protestantism. And it's like completely under the spell of uh, of, of uh, Mises and, and Rothbard. Right. right. I, I think you're right. I think that that I think that that's the hidden grammar of Western Michigan, if you want my humble opinion. I mean, I, this hidden grabber of Michigan outside of Detroit. Once you get outside of Detroit, it's libertarianism, and it's no it's no coincidence. I think that people like Father Sirica, the Catholic who makes his uh, has main job is to destroy Catholic social teaching, is located in uh, Grand Rapids in that area, uh, which is uh, Dutch Calvinist. And the Dutch Calvinists are the people that basically inv helped invent capitalism. They, they invented it, and then the English stole it from them. And then the English defeated them, and then they became kind of insignificant after that. But they're all in western Michigan, and they're like the Meyer family, the supermarket people. They're all promoting this thing called capitalism, which comes down to basically libertarianism, which is really stupid. It's really stupid. Uh, so it's created it basically in 1947 
Okay, 47 is the year when everybody is a socialist. This is the triumph of socialism. It's the reaction. Everybody wants to take a a break after World War II, and so England lapses into socialism, which means basically the government's going to take over everything. Uh, And so what are we going to do? I know we'll promote private property. And that'll be the solution to the problem of government taking over everything. So great. So so then Margaret Thatcher comes along and she privatizes everything and she wrecks the working class, hates the working class, hates the working man, was completely vindictive against the miners when they went on that strike for higher wages and basically wrecks the economy of England by privatizing it. So now you have the exact opposite. I mean, this is why I'm saying it's stupid because it is so completely irrelevant to the situation we have today where you have private, so-called private actors like Google. Is Google a private actor or is it the government? I think it's actually the government because the government doesn't govern anymore. That's, that's you know, Uh, saying, taking it mildly, if you take it a little bit further, you have private actors like IPAC, which controls the Congress, uh, and that's Jews, although you're only allowed to say neoconservatives. And now we've got the biggest battle, internet battle, uh, since the creation of the computer, and that's the battle between Elon Musk and the ADL. Well, wait a minute. Which side is, who's the good guy? I know who the good guy is, okay? I have no doubt in my mind that it's Elon Musk. But how does this fit into the uh, calculus that the libertarians gave us of private good, uh, public government bad? What What is the ADL? Well, that runs our country. You know, it IPAC, ADL, this group of people known as Jews run our country whether it's in terms of the internet, what you're allowed to say on the internet, what congressmen are allowed to say, anytime you run for office, you have to basically bow down to this idol. What's that got to do with libertarianism? Nothing. It's a completely obsolete ideology that doesn't explain anything. Nothing. Well, it, it, and it, it puts people in a, a frame of self-interest, which is completely anti-christian or, it's, it, or it's, selfishness i'd say selfishness like so Irene. who so yeah exactly exactly she's one she's the patron saint of this whole thing so if you go back to san francisco uh where father sirica got started uh before he was a catholic priest he was a flaming gay activist the first man to perform a gay marriage in the united states of america wow. What happened to them in the 70s? All of those homosexuals converted to libertarianism. Just, just, Justin Raimondo is another one. He's dead now, but I mean, he was a, a, an example of what I'm talking about. Because basically, what is libertarianism? It's basically, if you have money, you can do whatever you damn well please. Well, right. who can argue with that? Well, I know who can argue with that. The people who don't have money. What about the people? What, what about me? I don't have a lot of money. I don't have any money at all, basically. I'm, I don't want to complain here, but who's defending my rights? Do we have a government? This is the, exactly the crisis that we are in now with this battle between Elon Musk and the ADL. Do we have a government? In other words, can the ADL simply come in to 
Musk's life and destroy his business. He's lost, he claims he lost $22 billion of value in Twitter. Well, that, that's real money, isn't it? Yeah. Now, what, what has to happen now is that Elon Musk has to sue the ADL. Mm-hmm. Because Elon Musk is representing people like me. Uh, I'm not destroyed because God will only allow what he will allow. And wicked men do not rule this world. God rules this world. And God permits evil because a greater good will come of it. But he never allows evil to succeed beyond the bounds that he has set on it. And so I'm still here alive. I, I should have been dead 13 years ago when they first went after me. And I'm not dead, not even close to being dead. Uh, by the grace of God. But the question is, do we have a government? Where's Murray Rothbard? Where, well, they're all dead now. But Murray, do we have a government or not? Is a government bad? Isn't the government here to protect poor schmucks like me right. from Indiana, losers from Indiana who don't have billions of dollars? Yes, that's the answer. That's why we, so the First Amendment has to apply. They're going to have to enforce this because what the, the ADL has done is basically abrogated the First Amendment. You don't have a right. And the way they justify it is, hey, we're a private enterprise. So Murray Rothbart would approve of us. No, yeah. they have, the, uh, these private actors have so much power. They have more power than government. Yes, more power, and we have to take it back from them. Well, it's there must be some reckoning that it has to come for uh, the United States, being that it's completely abandoned whatever Protestant faith it had nationally. It's abandoned any ethnic Anglo-American background. People are completely under the spell of usury. It's completely normalized. I mean, and, there has to be. Yeah, and they've abandoned the working class. When was Correct. the last time you heard about the working man? Oh, no, no. No, no one wants to. There's no union speak. There's only, no, there's no, no, no. You don't have that identity. You have that's identity theft. You have been robbed of your identity as a working man. Yep. That way, in the 1930s, they would sing songs like Joe Hill, where working men defend their rights. It's there. You'll find Joe Hill. So I'm at the May Day celebration with the local commies here because I play the guitar. So I'm an honorary commie because I play the guitar. And the lady stands up and she says, I'm going to sing Joe Hill. We're working person, Steve. I thought, oh, why are you kidding me? You just wrecked a great song by making it gender unspecific or whatever. That's a, a, and exactly a, exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking about identity theft. That lady engaged in identity theft of the working class. And if there's one place that is suffering right now, it's Michigan. Every, look, every place, every part, the United States is suffering because the working man has been, is treated with contempt. But the, 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 the epicenter of working man culture was Michigan. And they are being punished for America First because America First was also a Michigan operation. Detroit, Father Coughlin, Henry Ford, and also Lindbergh grew up in Michigan. And they were people, and that was a time when a, man, a public figure could say the word Jew. Not that he wouldn't get punished. They were all punished for saying it because it had gotten that far. But there were still people out there willing to say that word. And as a result, uh, there was some type of pushback. Now they're being punished. That's why there's dope in Michigan. It's yeah. basically to erase the working man. 
so that he doesn't get upset and start demanding higher wages. Just smoke dope. Go home and smoke dope. And they're going to wreck what's left of working class culture in what wreck what is left of the manufacturing base of the United States in places like Michigan. Um, could I ask, uh, well, okay. So do you think that America could function as it is being so ethnically hetero, uh, heterogeneous? I don't know how I'd say that, but you get me. Um, how, how could, how could America really function at this point? Um, without that underlying combining uh, principle, um, we have. You, think, you have to you understand. Like, sorry, you have you have to understand American ethnicity. Yes, there are three ethnic groups in America: Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. Now, obviously, that was a theory. It's called the triple melting pot. It came from the 1930s. It would have to be updated because now there are a lot of Muslims here. Uh, but anyway, religion is the source of your identity in America. And so what you have, what is a white boy? A white boy is a Protestant, doesn't go to church anymore. So what you have is a a massive type of uh, identity theft or uh, uh, identity evaporation because of the decline of the Protestant church in America. When When I was a young man, there was something called the WASP elite the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite, it was still there. It was still there. And in 1978, 1978, I was 30 years old. And that's when Nelson Rockefeller died and John D. Rockefeller died, John D. Rockefeller III. And I think that was a symbolic moment because that was the demise of the WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ruling class, the demise of that class and the rise of the Jewish ruling class. But there is, a, there is a unity there, but it has to be made explicit. And the whole point of the calculus of the government is to use race to destroy that identity and create a conflict situation that can never be resolved because they benefit from that. And that's always what white is. It's, it's all white and black are always categories of the mind that are created for political purposes. So at one point you were privileged if you were white, like in the working class down in uh, Virginia in the 17th century to distinguish the Irish slaves from the black African slaves. You create this fiction of white and black and then you divide the working class. Robert Kennedy just echoed this and he says, I'm going to unite the black and white, black and white workers. He's got that residual Catholic sense to him. You know what I mean? Did you really, he's, he, he spent 14 years as a heroin addict when he should have been, you know, learning things. And so he's, there's a lot that he doesn't know, but he's got that residual sense of what it means to be a Catholic and understands that labor is important and it's a unifying factor that is being crippled by this overemphasis on race uh, as a way of dividing people. Critical race theory, which is, by the way, a Jewish theory, you know, yeah. imposed on us. I want to be uh, sensitive to your um, to your time. Did you want to just aim for an hour or? Can yes, we, let's just... let's do an hour because okay, I get so I get in tr- I get in trouble if I speak longer than I start saying. <laughs> yeah, things. I remember you saying that. Ab- absolutely crazy shit comes out of my mouth, and people <laughs> will comment on it the next day, and I'll have to apologize or say I didn't say it. So yeah, so let's, let's let's stick to okay. an hour. Okay, I'll ask one more question, which I haven't heard you talk about enough. 
um, which maybe if you have to keep it short, you can. But uh, I'm just curious, knowing so many Eastern Orthodox converts in real life and online, what is the what is the draw and why is why is this uh, um, law is is the Orthodox Church? I remember my first priest um, that I uh, spoke with, he he said that they're a sister church and. Yet I still feel that there's this lack of charity that goes on uh, with the dialogue between uh, specifically on the Eastern Orthodox and with the, with the Catholic Church. Um, but I guess which is what's your what, what is your point of view of this of this? There is a bit of a trend. It's not some great, huge trend, but you go to any no, Eastern it, Orthodox it's, Church. It's, it's, it's significant. Yeah, it's significant because yeah. I, I got a call from a bunch uh, uh they were Bulgarian Orthodox from Alaska, and they wanted to come and visit. Well, it turns out that they were all ex-Protestants, except for the, the priest who was an ex-Catholic. So mm -hmm. this, this is part of, what, part of what you learn as a Protestant is to hate the Catholic Church. And some, in many ways, that never goes away. It's, it, you can deal with, you have to deal with it explicitly, or if you don't, it kind of settles in and it makes you ill-disposed to becoming a Catholic Church, becoming a Catholic. Now, the Orthodox are an apostolic church. They are not uh, Protestants. They're not rebelling against something. There was uh, The split was basically between the Latin fathers and the Greek fathers. And as I said before, it, when it came to formulating the uh, Trinity, it was a Greek operation. You had to speak Greek. If you didn't speak Greek, you weren't in the, in the game. And the Latin fathers didn't, weren't in the game. And that led to the breakup of the Roman Empire. There's an, it, it's one of the fundamental divides of, of uh, world history, the divide between the Eastern Empire, Roman Empire, and the Western Roman Empire. And it still exists now with these uh, Orthodox churches. This schism was resolved by the Council of Florence because the uh, emperor uh, in, in Constantinople they, uh, realized the Turks are <laughs> coming. I need armies from the West to defend me against the Turks. And so he said basically to all of these uh, Orthodox prelates that went to Florence, we're, we're, you're going to solve this problem, period. And they did. They resolved the issue. And then people like Basarian went back to Russia and the people wouldn't accept it. The division had become so uh, solidified in culture that they wouldn't accept it. And so it, it goes unresolved to this day uh, when the church, the Catholic church, is in a very weak position. You will get a high place in heaven for converting at this moment in history uh, because the church has never been weaker, never been weaker. Uh, a crisis in the church that uh, is not fundamental, but it's, it's a real crisis anyway. So what I found is, I mean, they, there's a, an Orthodox convention. I've been to this many times. I'm the only Catholic speaking at the Orthodox convention. And they, they mention this. They bring this to my attention. Well, why is that? Well, because I'm the only guy who can really talk about the, what's happening in the culture in any type of, with any type of depth. And I, I don't want to do this to blow my own horn because that's what they're saying. So what... What you had here when the Bulgarian Orthodox came to South Bend, Indiana, was, well, basically, this guy's an Italian from Boston, and all the rest of the guys are Protestants who were left high and dry when Protestantism evaporated. And they, has this, they have this thirst for a, a serious liturgy, and Orthodoxy certainly has a serious liturgy, and they became that. And so the talk I gave at the conference was from the dangers of beauty, and I talked about how 
Giotto broke with Greek models. The Greek model was the icon, but it was also Plato, Platonic thought, Neoplatonic thought. The whole idea of orthodoxy is something that never changed, which is like the, like the icon. And I said, look, I have nothing against icons. It's an apostolic church, but there was a daring to the Catholic church that you did not find in the East, where they were, too, they were, they were kind of ossified. And I'm saying that if you want something that never changes, then you're probably doing better with orthodoxy. But there's an ethnic element to it that became apparent when the Bulgarians invited me to their convention in Indianapolis. And there are two kinds of Bulgarian Orthodox. There are the real Bulgarian Orthodox who speak Bulgarian. And then there are the Protestant converts who play American folk music. And so it came down to like a battle of the bands. <laughs> but I'm so if you're going to tell me that you're going to become an Orthodox, you just have to ask, well, which kind of Orthodox are you going to become? Are you going, and are you going to learn Russian? Are you going to learn Serbian? Are you going to learn, uh, you know, these languages, Bulgarian? Because if you're not, you're, 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 you're not fully part of an ethnic church mm. because it lacks that type of internationality yes. and daring that the Catholic Church has. Yes, big time. Um, uh, and I know there's a, a little thing about contraception that's never talked about where there are some churches that are quietly okay with it in the Eastern Orthodox thing. And then yeah. I think the only one that's against it is the Russian Orthodox. So yeah, so there's really a cool. there's a guy there's a guy who wants to debate me about the Catholic versus Orthodox. This is not subject for a debate. Okay, no. this is not something I want to debate. I'm saying that I respect what they are, but I'm saying yes. that uh, uh, I if you want the 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 story, uh, Jim Lacutus, who used to be president of Catholics United for the Faith, was born and baptized a Greek Orthodox and came over to Catholicism, and and he could explain to you a lot of the doctrinal problems and so on and so forth, but. Th th those that's basically i don't want to debate this issue this is not as uh, you know uh, uh something where you want to have a confrontation where this is something I where agree. you want to have some I type agree. of reconciliation because there are bigger fish to fry and the biggest fish to fry right now is the adl and that's we need all of these people uh in some type of american style political collaboration to basically break the jewish hegemony over our culture all of the Christians need to be involved in that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jones, uh, you're spry as ever. You're looking great. And Thank your you. influence on me and so many people has been, uh, there's no words for it. Um, and uh, I, I recommend everybody go uh, get a copy of Logos Rising. Um, and uh, thank you, Dr. Jones, for coming on. It really has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We had a great discussion. Thank you. Yes. All right. Take it easy, everybody. Peace. God bless. Peace. Peace.